Hi, this is Samantha Lishtak, owner of Absolute EHS. Today we are speaking to a social psychologist who works in public health, Dr. Jean. Hi, Dr. Jean. Hello. Hey, Sam. How are you? Good. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, no problem. Happy to be here. <laughs> so as you know, uh, this whole series is on COVID, uh, COVID-19. So uh, I'd like to start or actually, I'd like to start with you introducing yourself and your credentials. Sure. Uh, you can call me Dr. Jean. I am a doctor of social psychology, and I currently work in public health. Great. Um, so before COVID-19, what, what were you doing? What was I doing? I was getting in my car and going to the office, like I guess a lot of us were, and I was working in chronic disease, specifically focusing on physical activity, and I have a dog and a wide, vast network of friends. And I, I had a very active, happy social life. And then things got a little weird. So how did things get weird? Right. So because I'm in public health, there were whispers about this new disease um, starting as early as January. And they made me a little nervous, but I kind of ignored it. And then it became a lot harder to ignore in February. And then by March, people were wondering, how much longer are we going to keep coming to the office? You know, by then, we had seen that there were people infected in Seattle, and it was becoming much more serious. And then by the end of March, they told us to go work from home. And so I packed up a bag with a bunch of stuff from my desk, forgot to grab my headset and some books, and I regret it because I haven't been back since. It's been a little over three months, and I've been working from home. And I'm lucky that I can work from home, but I've got the internet, and I've got some peace and quiet. I live alone in a little 700 square foot apartment and I have everything I need. And so I've been on a lot of Zoom calls and sent a lot of emails and we have managed to uh, continue to do our work in that way. So being in public health and um, mm -hmm. being sent home in March, do you, um, do you think that that was appropriate or it should have been sooner or did we just not know enough yet? Oh, absolutely. So by then, they were also starting to close down the public schools. And once you have kids at home, you're going to need to think about the child care situation. And so more and more places were starting to close at that point. And so it really became very obviously the right thing to do. And I'm glad that it was an option for us. It's been surprisingly successful, I think. But what started to happen is that a lot of people, a lot of my coworkers started volunteering to help out with COVID, which is a thing that you can do at my job. And um, I was part of the sort of skeleton crew left behind trying to keep our current projects afloat. But it became clear pretty fast that a lot of our current projects were just going to have to wait because COVID was needing to move to the front burner. And after about two and a half months of continuing to work in my normal job, I was then given the opportunity to go help with um, COVID. And so I'm still working from home. I am not in the lab. I'm not out there contact tracing, talking to people. What I'm doing mostly is data analysis, data visualization, and presentations um, of survey data from people who do do that work. Um, so we're trying to make sure that they have everything that they need and that they're having the best possible experience. So I'm supporting them in that way from the sidelines. So you're supporting the people that are in the field with just making sure that they're taken care of. Is that correct? Basically, yes. Okay. And then the data analysis portion, which is pretty important. <laughs> well, I suppose really one of my coworkers is doing more of the data analysis. I'm getting to do a lot of fun data visualization. What's data visualization? Oh, so any sort of graph or figure that 
makes the data into a picture that you can actually understand that your brain doesn't get overwhelmed with because no one really wants to read statistics. <laughs> it's dreadfully boring, but if you can turn the words into an image and you can declutter it and make it so that people see it and they understand the takeaway message, then it's more likely to stick in their brain and they're more likely to understand and do something with that information. And that's what we want. We want to share information that people can use. You make useful public health clickbait is what I'm hearing. <laughs> Not exactly. <laughs> Nothing I've published will ever be on the internet, but it is getting into the eyes and minds of the people that need to see it from within my organization. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. So as a social psychologist also, you know, you've got the term social in there and I understand it means a lot more than just seeing people, but how are uh -huh. you, what, talk to me about how things have changed for you. I know you, you know, you're just saying that you used to go out and you've got like this vast network of friends and how have things changed that way for you? In the way that I think they've changed for a lot of people, which is that I don't see my friends. Now, a lot of my friends here are in public health and so they also understand that it's good to uh, practice social distancing and to be careful. And so a lot of them did what we all did in March. They retreated to their homes. And in a lot of parts of the country, it looks like people have started to go out again. Um, I can't say the same has been true for my friends. Most people I know are still staying home. And that includes me. Uh, it is day 93 of me sheltering in place. <laughs> and I don't have plans to really leave anytime soon and do things differently. I go out twice a day to walk my dog. I wear masks. I don't touch door handles as much as possible. And when I get inside, I wash my hands vigorously for at least 20 seconds. That's how I keep myself safe. I haven't even been inside a store in months. <laughs> the simple act of grocery shopping, I miss it so much. But I found a CSA that actually delivers. So this is um, food that is grown nearby by local farmers. Every week I get to say what of their yield I want to purchase. And then it's dropped off on my doorstep. So it's kind of great. I get to support a local business and I'm probably eating better than I ever have in my life. That's great. Yeah, if anybody is listening, CSA is Community Supported Agriculture. Um, yes. But those lists are getting harder and harder to get on. So if you find They one, really are. Bonded. Yeah. I was on a wait list for like three weeks before they finally let me off, and I can understand why. There's a great selection. I, you know, you can't get coffee creamer, but you can get butter and eggs and meat and bread and you know, beets and lettuce, and this is all going to depend on where you are, obviously. But some of them are also connected to other local businesses, and they have like a web of um, offerings, and you can pick and choose. But it's a great way to support local, eat local, and you kind of feel good because the money you spend is going into the pockets of, you know, your neighbors who are trying to keep their small business afloat and not whoever's in charge of Kroger. Yeah, right. <laughs> or any yeah. large supermarket, for that matter. Yes. Any large supermarket. Don't mm. want to call them out. They are um, essential. Okay, so but um, so it's you and your your little pup at home. What are you doing to to keep it together? That's right. So this is one of the ways in which grad school actually kind of prepared me for this weird, weird time we're in. Um, and part of that is that the last year of grad school for me was pretty lonely. I was writing my dissertation by myself. I was paid very little money, so I almost never went out because I couldn't afford it. And my friends were all pretty busy, and so I I just spent a lot of time by myself. And so you sort of when you're forced to do that, you learn how to be okay with your own company, right? You fill the time, you put structure into your day because no one else will, and you make it work. Um, but another way that my degree has helped me is that I know what it requires to be mentally healthy, 
And I know how important social interaction is for that. And something that I know a lot of people have said is that this is not really social distancing, this is physical distancing. It is still so important that we maintain our social connection. And even just the feeling, the knowledge that you could receive social support from people is more of a stress buffer than actually getting support from people. So just like psychologically, knowing that there are people you could call if you were lonely or if there was an emergency, even just that is healthy for people. And so I've, I've literally sat down and made lists and it's, you know, I, I know who my good friends are, who I'm gonna call constantly, but then I also think about, okay, who, who else? Like, who can I reach out to now? Oh, my, my aunt, she's older, she's diabetic, she's shielding at home in Texas, she might be lonely, let me give her a call. I'm trying to be a lot more deliberate about maintaining these um, social connections that might have um, been neglected over the years. And a lot of people are doing this. I have some friends that I haven't seen in a while, but every Sunday we watch a bad musical together. <laughs> and we can listen to each other laugh and make jokes, and it feels like we're in the room together. And of course, none of this is ever going to be as good as actually going to a restaurant and sharing food and seeing their face and being able to hug them when it's over. But the feeling that there are people you can talk to and that understand because they're also having a rough time, you know, we're all having a rough time, that has been game changing. Because even though I have had one hug in three months, I don't feel lonely. I really don't. I, I feel connected in some ways to more people than I ever have. So that is what keeps me sane. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, but okay, so again, this is why I wanted to talk to you today as a social psychologist, public health. Yep. Do you feel you're overreacting? You are in the low risk age group. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're seeing, I know I'm in New York, we're, we're entering phase three up where I am in upstate New York. Um, okay. I personally like to stay hunkered down, and I think anybody who's following me knows that. But, uh, you know, you see everybody else kind of going out, not wearing masks. They're going to rallies and protests, which, you know, as, as absolute EHS, I've made perfectly clear I support with social distancing in place. Um, Black Lives Matter. At, at what point what point are those people who are going out and looking at you and saying, you're overreacting, what are you, nuts? What are we supposed to do to combat that? How do you how do you convince yourself that on day ninety three this is still important? That's such a good question. So there was a time in the first couple of weeks of you know quarantine's not the right word for it, but when we were all social distancing, we all retreated into our homes as much as we could. Those of us who are not essential workers, and there was this impression that we were doing the right thing and we were all in this together and we were just going to ride this out and it was going to be pretty straightforward, you stay home as much as possible, you wash your hands, it's gonna be okay. And then the debate about masks really took off and became so politicized. And now as more and more states are reopening and everything is happening on different timelines and the information you get is constant and sometimes conflicting and you see more and more people go out, it's impossible to not look at that and say, okay, shouldn't I be doing that too? People are social animals. One of the ways we understand what is normal and correct is to look around and see what other people are doing. That's normal. I have a lot of friends, myself included, who see that and get frustrated and start to question their own behaviors. My response to that, and I can only speak for myself, but maybe you'll feel a kernel of truth in this, is that just because we are not seeing COVID directly in our lives, 
with any of our loved ones yet, if you're fortunate enough to be in that group, just because there are other things happening in the news that are taking away people's attention does not mean the pandemic is over. The pandemic is far from over. We have successfully flattened the curve. The social distancing, the masks, the early measures as early as we could, those made a huge difference. We talked a lot about flattening the curve. That was a message that got out there. People understood it. People did it for a while and the curve is now flat. That's not the same as the curve sloping down or being done. People talk a lot about the second wave that may or may not come in the fall. We're still in the first one. There are still roughly 20,000 new cases a day and that number has not changed for weeks. Things might be getting better in places like New York that were really hard hit early on, but we are seeing other outbreaks popping up here and there in places like Texas, Florida, South Carolina, Los Angeles. We're seeing um, outbreaks, especially in places like meatpacking plants where people are packed in close together, having to yell, expelling a lot of air from their lungs. We're not out of the woods, we just aren't. And while I am, you know, under 40, <laughs> so I'm in a low risk group, I do not have any of the comorbidities that lead to people having worse outcomes. However, you know, there was a study recently where one in four people hospitalized in my home state didn't have a high risk condition. There is still a lot we don't understand about this virus. And because I live alone, if I were to get sick, I would have to face this threat by myself. And it would probably be okay because I'm otherwise pretty healthy, but it might also not be okay. You know, if one in four people hospitalized didn't have a high risk condition, if there are people who were otherwise healthy in their 30s who are getting strokes, if there are children who now have this multi-system inflammatory syndrome that we don't fully understand what's happening with them yet, um, if there are people whose cases are considered mild, they're not needing to go to the hospital, but now they have like chronic fatigue symptoms that last for months. These things are happening to people that are my age or younger. We don't understand this disease yet. And if I were to get sick, I would need to face those threats by myself. My parents live in another state. They are elderly. I would not expect nor would I ever ask them to come help me. Same of my friends. I would be very, very worried about putting them in danger. And so I would probably stop myself from calling them even as I was maybe unable to breathe. And there would not be another adult in the room to look at me and say, we've crossed the line into severe, we need to go to the hospital. And so when I think to myself about what a bad case scenario would look like and having to face that by myself, I say, you know, I don't need a haircut. <laughs> I'm just gonna Zoom my friends and it's gonna be fine. I'm gonna keep doing the behaviors that I've been doing for the last three months because so far they have kept me safe. And that is how I am choosing to respond to this particular threat. A lot of people don't have that choice. They need to leave the house to go to work. They have to do their essential jobs. And I think of those people who are essential, especially if they see COVID in their patients or out in the world, they still have a heightened sense of danger. Those of us who've been Zooming our colleagues and trying to like homeschool their kids and working from home who are losing patients who don't see the effects of this in their personal life. This is an ambiguous amorphous threat that if you don't see it, it is really hard to still care about. You know, the human brain, our responses to fear, if that fear is not realized and right in front of you and you can't point to a loved one or a family member or a friend or even someone you kind of know and say, well, I see the threat, you're, you're just not going to care after three months. 
it is so hard to still be afraid or cautious about something after that period of time. Your brain gets sick of it. <laughs> people want to move on. They're bored, and I completely get it. And people long for a sense of normalcy and control. Feeling out of control is the worst. <laughs> no one wants to feel out of control or afraid. And we will do mental psychological gymnastics to tell ourselves we have control, because otherwise it is a deeply unsettling feeling. And these are very deeply unsettling times. <laughs> yes, that's just such, uh, I love how you described all that. That all makes perfect sense. And that's, I hope that helps anybody who's listening to this podcast. Um, are there any, um, I guess, actual live stories you can relay to those who maybe haven't, uh, or people who have been fortunate that they haven't known anybody who has passed or gotten sick? Yeah. So the first person I ever sort of even close to knew who got infected was my friend's boyfriend. He was otherwise running, you know, half marathons, pretty healthy guy. And he had all the symptoms and he tested negative. And we were all very surprised, including his doctor, who was like, yeah, no, this is, this is COVID. I don't get it, but negative. Uh, we now know that the tests are maybe not the most reliable and it's still better to get the test if you can or if you've been exposed but we don't always know that what the test tells us is going to be true. And that became even more obvious and devastating when I then got the call that one of my coworkers was sick. I used to work on a team that had, you know, between eight and 10 people on it. And he was very extroverted and so smart and had been working where I've been working for years and was so well regarded. And I got a call saying that he was in the ER and he had kidney failure and he had all of the classic COVID symptoms, but his test was negative. But the doctors treating him were saying, I do this all day. This, this is coronavirus, but the test was negative. And that was really distressing to hear. And then I went back to work, by which I mean back to my Zoom meetings, back to my emails. And then a week later, we found out that he passed away. And he never tested positive. I don't know if he was even counted among the, um, the deaths in this state, it was probably considered probable because he had all of the symptoms, but you know, we couldn't even go to the Shiva. We can't go anywhere. Mourning in the time of COVID is devastating because all you wanna do is hug other people and you want to sit with the people who are in pain in the same way that you're in pain and experience that together and process it. And we couldn't do that. We went on Zoom and we looked in the camera as each other, you know, my boss, my boss's boss, her boss, as we just like told stories about him and cried. And it doesn't even totally feel real because it's not like I can go into work and notice his empty office. You know, there, there's going to be a day when his absence is felt physically that hasn't come yet and he's been dead for weeks. And that is very, very strange. And so far that's the closest to me that it has gotten. I know other people who have like a grandparent in a, uh, you know, residential facility who have now tested positive, um, who are now in the hospital, they're very frightened. But I think unless it comes home for you and you see it, it's very, very difficult to still care. Well, you're also with your, um, what you were just describing, it almost sounds like you're preparing for a delayed morning. Like yeah. it's all on TV almost because it's on Zoom. Yeah. So no, I think you're right. I think going back to work is going to be strange for a number of reasons. And one of them is that his absence, he was already such a big personality 
that his absence is going to be felt very strongly. And so and I expect he, this to sort of punch me in the gut a second time in the future. Yeah. And I mean, he was, he was also in public health though. I mean, he knew what he was doing and what was going on. Right. That's true. Yeah. That yeah. makes it even more alarming. <laughs> mm -hmm. Very sorry to you and your team for that loss. Well, thank you. Um, but uh, you've definitely outlined a lot of things. Is there anything else that you think needs to be relayed, particularly as someone yeah. in your position that could be useful or, you know, food for thought? Yeah, thank you for that. So I guess the only thing I would say left is that there's still so much we don't know about COVID, right? And when I think about this disease, I find myself comparing it to almost to a, another pandemic that still exists in recent memory, and that is HIV AIDS, which when it started was obviously very frightening, very un poorly understood, and it's taken decades and activism and billions in funding and hundreds of researchers for us to get to the place where we are today. And the place for today is that we completely understand what HIV does to the body. We understand what behaviors are safe. Things like you can kiss a person who has AIDS, you can use the same bathroom, and we know what behaviors are not safe. Unprotected sex, blood transfusions. We now have medicines that prevent it. You can take PrEP. We now have fast, reliable HIV tests. I've been tested twice. It's so easy. They tell you 10 minutes later and you can trust that result. We now know if you do end up being HIV positive, how to treat it and how to manage it. And if you have AIDS, there are medications, there are things you can do to live with it. None of that is true of coronavirus. Absolutely none of it. We are still learning about what coronavirus does to the body. The multi-inflammatory syndrome in children, the strokes in people in their 30s. It, it, it's, it's a weird, weird disease that is caused by SARS-CoV-2. And so we're still learning what it does to the body. We are still trying to sort of suss out what is safe and unsafe, right? People really want to know where's the line. The problem is the real line is kind of unknowable. You would need to know exactly how many viral particles were being expelled at any one time, how they were getting into the other person, the, the, you know, how long that person had been sick before, all the conditions in the environment. It's, it's unknowable in the while you're out there, right? And so people want to know, is it safe to go swimming in a public pool? Is it safe to share an elevator? Is it safe to this, this, this? The answer is it's really hard to say. There are things that are more safe and things that are less safe, but the line is not as clear. We don't have pharmacological preventative things that you can take right now that would make it so that if you were exposed to coronavirus, you would be less likely to get infected. We do not have reliable valid testing available to everyone, right? We are still learning how to treat it. Doctors on the front lines, especially at the beginning, were scrambling to figure out what could work and then just sharing that amongst themselves. And as far as like living with it, well, there's not a cure for it. And so we are still in the early days of a disease that we do not fully understand. We are not able to always successfully treat that for which there is no vaccine. And it's a weird, weird time. What gives me hope is that every day, because of my job, I have the opportunity to listen to people talk about all of the work that is being done to combat this. They talk about vaccines. They talk about interventions. They talk about doctors. A lot of really smart people are devoting their lives to making 
us get to the other side of this as quickly and safely as possible. And personally, I think it is up to us to do everything we can to protect ourselves, to protect our loved ones, and to protect our community at large. And that means we need to continue with the social distancing and we need to keep washing our hands. Do love washing my hands. Oh my God, I'm getting so good at washing my hands. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This was really informative. And at least on a personal note, you know, we've been, I've been stuck home with a toddler and, you know, it's nice to know that I'm not the, the only crazy person who's trying to stay home as much as possible. Um, you are absolutely not. It's, it's nice. I think uh, the group of us, we're, we're not as loud as we could be. You know what? I think you're right about that. You don't hear a lot from the people that are just still sitting at home making their sourdough, uh, staying out of it. But we're out or, there. Or we're banana doing, bread. We're doing the best. Or banana bread. Or banana bread. I, I have yet. I have yet to do either. Oh really? I'm, well, did you remember the time in college when I screwed up those blueberry muffins? Uh, yes, I do. Yeah, it was literally blueberry muffin mix and water, and I did it wrong. Doctor Jean, everybody. She is not a baker. I'm gifted in other ways. I'm gifted in other ways. <laughs> All right, Dr. Dean, well, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, you're so welcome. Happy to do it. Thank you.